great. It'll help you to get some structure of what we're talking about uh, tonight. Tonight is the night that we start this book of Isaiah, and I've got to be honest with you, I'm a little bit nervous. Isaiah is just such a massive book. 66 chapters spanning the reign of four kings, uh, more than two invasions from other nations, covering a 40-year period in a time that none of us are familiar with, in places that we haven't many of us been to or, or understood. And we get 66 chapters of this. And you kind of go, what has been going on until this point? And what is happening here? And who is this guy called Isaiah? There's so much to be kind of overwhelmed with as we come in. So let me take you through what is the story so far. In your outline, you would have received a little card. We printed it on 120 GSM, for those of you who care about how thick that piece of card is. But you can stick it on your fridge or the back of your toilet door. it just help you to get the picture of where we're going over the next 15 weeks as we look at this book of Isaiah. It's going to be some great times. But basically, it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the world, and He made Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve rejected God as, as their God, and that's what we call the fall, where they've uh, turned their backs on God. After a series of new starts through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says to him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you and this nation a land of their own, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And from that point on, we start seeing all of human history is controlled around that idea. Then as people come along, Abraham has a child, Isaac. Isaac has a child called Jacob or Israel. And one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, gets sold into slavery, taken off to Egypt. And then there's a massive famine and God so orders the world that Joseph saves Israel because they come and they find out that he's there and he gives them grain. And so God's chosen people are in Egypt, not in the land that they're supposed to be in, but they're together and things are going well until Joseph dies, a new Pharaoh comes and he doesn't like the Israelites. He doesn't like the descendants of Abraham, so he puts them in slavery and they're there under slavery for 400 years. Generation, generation, generation. And that happens until they finally call out to God. They cry out that we're being oppressed and God hears them cry out. Around 1300 BC, he brings the people out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea into the promised land of Canaan. And around 1000 BC, God then brings this little shepherd boy called David, who wins a battle against this massive Goliath to be the king of Israel. And it's a great time where God's chosen king is over his chosen people in the place that they are supposed to be. After David dies, comes Solomon, who is his son, who has this great wisdom, and he, and he sets up the temple, which is the, the kind of the permanent place of God dwelling with His people. He's no longer in a tent like He was for all that time before, going around with Israel through the desert, but now He has His own house. But God promises, through a descendant of David, through David's son, that He will build a dynasty, a ruler who will, will never die and will rule forever. But they don't keep listening to God. Around 922, the top northern tribes, the ten tribes up north, split from the southern tribes. And you see that the diagram splits in two. And that's where I want to show you a map. See, you get the top guys here uh, in the northern ten tribes called Israel. 
and their capital is Samaria. But they're not of the line of David. Then you get the bottom two tribes called Judah, where their capital is Jerusalem, and they are from the line of King David. And Isaiah, as he steps onto the world scene, is a prophet. He's a mouthpiece for God to the southern kingdom of Judah, to the two tribes who have the lineage of David through whom the promised king will come. Well, there you go. A quick bit of history. (laughs) You can see why it's easy to be overwhelmed as we approach a massive book like Isaiah. And as we go through it tonight, you might have questions. And you'll see up on the screen, there's a number there that you can text your questions to, and we'll have a go at answering them. It'd be great to, to hear those as we try and understand what this book is saying. The thing I want us to see as we start is that what we have before us is not only just some guys writing, but it's God speaking to us in a way that shapes and molds us. This vision that we'll see is a vision that will reach out and shake us. It'll shake us from our small-minded and self-focused ways of life and focus our hearts and minds on God's plans and purposes. If only we can understand it, or rather, if only we let it come and shake us. So why don't we pray that we'd ask God now to do exactly that. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this word tonight, there's a sense in which this book feels so huge. You know what's been going on in our lives and just trying to get our heads around this time and place can be so hard, but we're so thankful that you have spoken through your word. We ask that tonight that by your spirit, you would lay bare our hearts We want you to show us your word. We want you to show us how it comforts us and challenges us and changes us. Please, Lord, work in us tonight. And focus our minds that we might see clearly what you have to say to us through this prophet of Isaiah. Amen. Well, Isaiah 1 verse 1 starts in this way. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Listen, heavens, pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. The opening lines of the book of Isaiah are like the first stirring chords of an overture to a great opera of world history. They call every person, and earth and heaven to listen, to give our attention to what God is saying. And we get the first indication of what we're about to hear. For we're about to hear the words of a man, Isaiah, a man who would live and die and breathe out this vision for the people of Israel, clothed in human passion and cast in human language. But what we also get is a vision from God. This is God speaking. He is speaking to us. Through Isaiah, yes, but this vision originates from God. At its most basic level, this is God's vision for us and only exists because the Lord Himself speaks it. It begins by summoning the heavens and the earth to listen. Did you hear it? Listen, heavens. Pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. It it makes you want to prick up your ears and go, what is happening? God is speaking to our world. He speaks a tale of two cities, one corrupt and under His judgment, 
and the other renewed, recreated, the delight of the whole earth. And he speaks into a world that is not calm and peaceful. He speaks into a world that's full of turbulence. The immediate future is looking worse for these people. Battles are won and lost. Kingdoms rise and fall. The world is an unstable and dangerous place. People struggle to even survive and make sense of their lives. History, as they experienced it, was characterized by consistent change, intense, threatening and confusing. And that's how it would have remained if God had not spoken into it. But verse 2, with its announcement that the Lord has spoken, breaks into the world scene of history like the let there be light of Genesis 1. It pierces the chaos of human history with the brilliance of God's voice. It breaks into human history to expose its true shape and character and goal. It's not a vision from God that takes us into some place with furry unicorns and fluffy bunny rabbits of the place of dreamland and marshmallow men. It's not some way out wacky vision, but rather draws back the curtain and shows us that history with all its confusing particulars, is the stage on which this great drama is being enacted. A drama scripted and directed at every point by God Himself. God is in control. His plans will happen. This is what's going on. And so God speaks. History has meaning because God is taking it somewhere. It's not just careering off in some random direction, But God is taking human history to a certain end point. And what this vision does is it sets that end clearly before us and calls you and I to live every moment of our lives in the light of this plan. Listen, heavens. Pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Well, in this tale of two cities, the first city we meet is a corrupt city. The corrupt Jerusalem, which is the second point on your outline. It's the capital, again, of Judah, that southern city that we saw on that map just there. Listen to the way that God describes this Jerusalem, this city that was His his own children, His nation, His people. Isaiah 1 verse 4. And think to yourself, is this what I expected? O sinful nation! People weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. Happy days. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. It's not a nice picture for this city called Jerusalem. The people are weighed down by immorality. They're characterized by evil. I mean, imagine if God said that about Auckland. Imagine if He said, Oh, sinful Auckland, full of immorality, you family of evildoers, you. You're not like, Oh, thanks, God. Cheers. Good day. There's a serious charge going on here and about God's own people. Why is God so angry? What has gone on to cause such judgment on this nation? Well, Isaiah tells us they have abandoned the God who made them. They've abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've despised God Himself. 
The people of Jerusalem have failed to be what they should have been. People who are after God's own heart. People who took God's word and followed him, who, who recognized their identity as a people who'd been saved out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. But they had abandoned the God who, who made them and saved them. And what happens when you abandon God is that our morals are never good. See, once you throw out the position of God, you're actually stepping into that position yourself. You're stepping into the position of saying, I can choose what the right way to live is. I can choose what is morally right or wrong. And so we start to become our own rulers. We start to become little gods of our own lives. But the problem is we, we can't rule. We're broken. We're evil. We're twisted. The moment we decide what is right and what is good is the moment human history happens. And all sorts of wrong and disaster and evil take place. Mankind left to our own devices are rotten to the core, all of us. All that's left is corruption. It's not a nice picture that we hear as we start out this book of Isaiah of humanity, but particularly this Jerusalem. But, oh, do you notice the hints of what we are like? A temptation to turn our backs on the true and living God. Israel are acting like a spoilt little brat of a child. Ever seen that kid at the shops? Here in the shops and the mum's there trying to get him and he's like, I want this birdie beetle. And like, you're not getting a birdie beetle, you know? He's like, I want the birdie beetle. And like, you're not getting it. So the kid then goes, fine, and walks off somewhere else says, I'm going to stand over here. It's this moment of defiance and you're like, dude, you can't, like, you've got to get back in the car with your mum. Like, this is not going to work well. But they're like, no, I don't care. And that's kind of what Israel is doing. I kind of want to be part of this family called God's family, but I don't want to live God's way. And they storm away from their parent, God, thinking they know better. And the reason is because not only is the whole nation corrupt, the people are corrupt. There's a corrupt people. This isn't a minor one-off temper tantrum. It's a determined rejection of the true and living God. From the people that God made, from the people He brought out of slavery... There was a mother at the last church I used to be a pastor at who um, hadn't heard from her son in over 24 years. There'd been no massive breakup. There'd been no massive argument. He'd just gone off and hadn't heard for a while and a while turned into longer. And then 24 years, he had not called or spoken to or seen his mum. Then one day out of the blue, he contacts her. You can imagine what she's like. So my son, yeah, of course I want to meet. So they meet up and there's this wonderful reunion and they chat. And over the conversation, she, she finds out toward the end that actually he's, he's in a bit of a situation and he needs some money. Now, of course, the mum gives him the money. I haven't seen you for 24 years. Look, I want to help you through this situation. We love you. I'm so glad you've come back. She gave him the money. She hasn't seen him again since. This is the people of Jerusalem who use God and walk away from Him and then want nothing to do with Him. God says farm animals give their masters better attention than Israel does God. Look at this in verse 3. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Israel are more stupid than a farm animal. That's what God is saying. He's fuming at them. 
Because what this city has done is consistently thumb their nose at God. I don't need you. I don't want you. I can live without you. I might go through the motions, but I don't want to follow you. The people are corrupt. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, says to them what any kind of sane person would say. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you, Israel? Look at verse 5. Do you want more beatings? (laughs) Do you want to be judged by the nations around you the way I have been? Why do you keep rebelling? The whole head is hurt. The whole heart is sick. From the sole of foot to, to even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds and welts and festering sores not cleansed, bandaged or soothed with oil. God is like the loving parent looking over his child who will not learn a lesson. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation. A place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Like a broken father speaking to his junkie son, God speaks to his children. When will enough be enough? When will you wake up to your senses and stop rejecting me? Friends, I don't know where you are at tonight with God. I don't know what is going on in your life, whether you've wandered away from Him, whether you've never wandered toward Him. But do hear the warning. We cannot go on in life pretending we've done nothing wrong before God. No one can. All of us have turned our backs on Him. No one has treated God the way He deserves to be treated. Not wholly, not fully, we haven't done it. And pretending that we've done nothing wrong before God is just like being a drug addict that says, I can stop anytime. There's no problems here, nothing to worry about. I'm just going to go on with my life. It's pretty good. It's all going fine. Until we die of the overdose. Until Jesus comes back and God's judgment is fully enacted and we get what we deserve, death, judgment and hell. In Genesis 19, God speaks of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You might have heard of the story. These cities were so rebellious, so detestable to God, that given their immorality and their wickedness, their cruelty toward people and their outright evil, God completely destroys these cities. He wipes them from the face of the earth, sends raining sulfur on them. Sodom and Gomorrah were not good examples of upright moral people. (laughs) But then listen to how God addresses His own children. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He calls Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you are headed hell-bent for me wiping you off the face of the earth. So often as Christians, we get caught up in the wrong questions about God. So often we find ourselves going, God, why haven't you saved everyone? Why don't you save all these people? How can you be good and not save everyone? And we get caught up in these questions, but when you recognize what Israel were like, and when you see the family likeness of you and I and the way we don't treat God, the question we should be asking is not how can God God not save everyone? The question we should be asking is, how can God save anyone? (laughs) How is it that you and I can be saved when we deserve this? Israel are a corrupt people. 
They've turned their back on the true and living God. But not only are they corrupt in their, in, in their personhood, they're, they're corrupt in the way they worship God because they still pretend to worship Him. Their worship is corrupt, which is the next point in your outline. Look at verse 11. What are all your sacrifices to me? asked the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and of the, the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls or lambs or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the, the, the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. See, Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, they were going through the motions. They were offering to God the sacrifices that He had set up in the Old Testament when things were right or between God and His people. But then they weren't actually apologizing. They didn't care about it. They're like, oh, sorry. Like again, that child that does something wrong, takes the chocolate biscuit. And like, as they put it in their mouth, you say, you shouldn't eat that. They go, oh, sorry, as they swallow it down. They were going through the motions. They were hedging their bets. A little bit of worship of the true and living God and a little bit of this over here. On Saturdays, we'll come and we'll do what we ought to do in the temple courts. But the rest of the week, we won't live the way God wants us to. None of that. We want to live our way. They were going through the motions. Coming to church on Sunday, maybe. Doing their time, but walking out on Monday without it changing a thing. And what it shows us is that sacrifice, honoring God with the wrong heart, is a stench to God. It does squat for a relationship with Him. It's like, what are you doing living one way and then changing to live another? Doing the right thing with the wrong heart repulses God. That's what He's saying. Look at verse 14. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. And they're the festivals God said to do and He set up to do. But He's like, I hate them. They've become a burden to me. I'm, I'm put up with, I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered in blood. They're talking the talk without walking the walk. And it repulses God. He's sick of it. He won't put up with it anymore. I want to ask you an honest question. And you don't need to put your hand up. I just want you to reflect in and of yourself at this moment. And it's okay to be honest. <laughs> Do you ever come to church and find it boring? <laughs> Do you ever come along to church and think, oh man, I just find church boring. You know, it's the same old, same old. Some guy gets up and talks for 10 minutes too long. You know, and it's the same songs. It's not my style. They don't sing my style. And sometimes I get frustrated with that. I didn't feel like the preacher connected. He wasn't funny enough. He just told dodgy dad jokes. You know, it was quite boring in the end. And then we opened up the Bible. It was some ancient book and it didn't really feel relevant to me. Do you ever feel like that? Now, we as a church need to make sure we keep doing our best to help one another connect with the relevance of God's Word, to show how relevant God's Word is to us. We need to keep working hard at choosing songs that articulate what the Bible is actually saying and capture our head and heart. We need to, to preach and have interviews that, that show the goodness and greatness of our God. But let me ask you another question. Do you ever think 
that God gets bored with us at church? Do you ever think God looks at us and goes, oh, I'm sick of them. They just come to church each week going through the motions and walk out and don't change anything. They never prepare before they come to hear my word together. They just come and be like, oh, whatever. And they're thinking about their shopping list or looking on Trade Me. And it feels like when they sing sometimes, they're reading the obituary in Sunday's paper. Not singing of the truths of the gospel. They're not captivated by the glorious joy of being adopted as my child. They're not letting my word affect their heart. Oh, how bored I am with them. seems to me that often Christians with big heads have small necks. Let me explain what I mean. Often Christians who spend their time understanding who God is, who spend their time to articulate the, the intricacies of Scripture and to understand God with great depth, have great understanding of our God, have great knowledge in our heads, but it never gets past our necks to our hearts. It's like we've got big heads, but little tiny necks. And the knowledge of God doesn't change through into changing the way that we live in our hearts and our lives. We know what it looks like to live for Him rightly, but we don't let it change the way we live. Our small necks choke out the great biblical truths that we know. Is that us? Is that, is that you? <laughs> Going through the motions... Or even having a deep thirst for an intellectual understanding of God. If you're just doing that but not applying it to your heart, it is detestable to God. Of course we want to go deep in God's Word. Of course we want to understand Him. We must to hear Him in His fullness. But it's just the sinfulness of my human heart, and my guess is yours, that so often stops me applying it to my life. Friends, hear from the example God made of Israel. Live out the truths of what you know. Don't be half-hearted. Don't go through the motions. Let your, your faces and bodies reflect the content of the words you're singing and saying to others. Let your lives ring out with the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the, the faithfulness and the self-control that the Spirit brings. We've just been learning about that in the book of Galatians. How people who are freed because of Jesus are free to walk by the Spirit. Let that ring out. If there's a mismatch between your head and your heart, between your loving your Lord and loving and living your life, and don't just keep going. Do something about it. Do something about it tonight. Because that's exactly what Israel's leaders didn't do. They didn't do anything about this. Not only were the people corrupt, not only was their worship corrupt, but the leaders of Israel were corrupt as well. They didn't make changes. Listen to the way God describes their rulers. Verse 23. Your rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless, and the widow's case never comes before them. Talk about blood on their hands. They loved graft. That just means a bribe. They love taking bribes. They're all about, show me the money. Rather than hearing the cry of the oppressed within Israel and Judah, like God did with Egypt, they look to make profit off others' distress. Make a quick buck. Live the comfy life. 
rather than defend the rights of the powerless, the leaders sided with the thieves, with the criminals. They were friends with the world and the wicked rather than with God and His people and those who needed them to stand by them. The whole fabric of Israel's society has gone to custard. What's interesting is, it's not just them that God is speaking to. In Matthew 15, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and He speaks about the way they just go through the motions. Have a look what He says. Jesus answered them, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift I've committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. In other words, they were saying, look, I'm just giving the support I would give to my mum and my dad and caring for them. I don't want to give it to you. I've given it to the temple as a gift over here. So that way I don't need to care for you anymore. They're using the worship of God to get out of it. Look at what Jesus says, verse 7. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain teaching as doctrines, human commands. If nothing else, Jesus' quote here tells us that Isaiah's word to Jerusalem is a word, a living word to every generation. How are you treating the true and living God? For those who've been rescued by the love of the powerful God, to those who've been brought back from the power and oppression of our sinfulness, have you had the same care and love for others who need rescuing, for others who, who are oppressed. For that would show the love of God in your life. That would help people to be rescued from sin's oppression. We need to look at the injustices of this world. We need to sit here as people who've been forgiven and go, we need to think about the way we treat the world around us because that's part of the problem of, of Jerusalem. They just ignored God's way. They didn't care about it. They didn't listen to what He said. They were just going through the motions. And it got me thinking, what would it look like for us to start thinking through some of the injustices of this world in the way that we're called to? What would it look like for me to protect the rights of the poor and the powerless? Well, I think the answer to that is one glaringly obvious answer but a socially suicidal answer at the same time. I think one of the biggest issues that faces us today is abortion. Children who are made like us in the image of God, but who never get the chance to see the light of day or hear the word of Jesus. Women who feel that they've got no other option than to go through this abortion, who regret the decision they've made for life, Fathers who feel like they can't speak up because everyone says it's the mother's choice and so it's her body and I could never speak saying, no, I want to keep this child. Do you know that in New Zealand, in the last year, one out of every five pregnancies ended in abortion? One in five. 13,282 recorded abortions in the last year. Do you know only 33,000 people died in the last year? doesn't include this number, by the way. 
because it's not seen as death. So many men, women, and children going through all sorts of pain. And we're standing here watching. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do to care for these children? To care for these mothers and their families? Do you know last year the government spent $1.4 billion reducing road deaths? Do you know how many people died from road deaths last year? 377. 13,282. Helpless. What ought we to do? As we think about the realities of how we are called to live. What is required of Israel at this point as God speaks to them? And what is required of us? Well, God is quite clear. What is required is repentance. Repentance is required. That's the next point. Isaiah 1 verse 16. Wash yourselves, says God. Cleanse yourselves, Judah. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Pursue the widow's cause. Friends, as we hear the words of the Lord, we need to recognize what He is saying. Stop our rebellion against Him. Stop our false worship. When it comes to the goodness of our God and the injustices of the world, do not remain silent. Oh, the world around us will laugh. Yes, they'll make fun of us. They'll do horrible things to us. But this is the God who is in control of human history. And what is at stake is heaven and hell, life and death. Listen, O heavens. Hear, O earth, the word of the Lord. Hear what he is saying to us. Where are you at? How will you live? But it's hard. It's hard to live God's way. History shows just how hard it is. But I want to say there is hope. In the midst of God's condemning judgment on Israel, there is a little ray of hope. Look at verse 18. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten. You will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of a Lord has been spoken. The promise of forgiveness the promise of being wiped clean, the promise of, of God wiping away our sin and our wrong and our rebellion and standing before Him if we would just come and trust Him. Friends, there's one thing that is very clear from this. There is nothing you have done that cannot be forgiven by this God. There is no sin too deeply read, no wrong too offensive that God cannot deal with it. 
You have not gone too far. It is not too late. Do not give up and say, oh, it's all gone now. But God's forgiveness is on His terms and no other. What verse 21 to 23 clearly show is that there was no change of heart amongst the people of Judah. The way of forgiveness that God had provided had been rejected. And now judgment is announced by God. But look for the surprise in this final form of judgment. Verse 24. Therefore the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel declares, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. And he's talking about Jerusalem here. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I will remove all your impurities. God's judgment is strong. His judgment is fierce. But do you see what he's doing? God's judgment is described in terms that imply purification rather than annihilation. I will remove your impurities through judgment, through testing, through trial. I will shape you and mold you and make you to see that you come to me and trust me. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. He does not give us what we deserve. And that has to do with his amazing character. Have a listen to verse 26. And see what this God is like. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to where they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. What is God doing? Zion will be redeemed by justice. They'll be brought back. Those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken and those who abandon the Lord will perish. All of that has to do with this second city, the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. The city that was once faithful, old Jerusalem, will be made new and faithful again. But only after it's passed through the fires of God's judgment. God will redeem His people. He'll, he'll buy them back from their wickedness. But we must see that redemption being brought back and judgment are, are inseparable. God is just. He must send His wrath. He must punish those who deserve it. But then He pays that price and will bring them back and wipe their sins as white as snow. The two have to come together. The only way mercy can come is if God's justice and judgment are met. And the way God does it is through trials. It's through molding and shaping us to the point where we realize we need to trust in His promised King. The whole book of Isaiah points forward to a King who would come, a King who would lead the nations far better than their leaders did. A King who would come and deal with the judgment we deserved and wipe us clean should we trust Him and repent. Who would offer us mercy, who would not give us what we deserve, and His name is Jesus. And it happened on a Roman cross, and we get to stand this side of the cross, looking back at the judgment we ought to have deserved, and say thank you. 
Thank you for wiping away my sin. Thank you for the promise of, of a new city, a new nation, a new people. Thank you for the trials. Thank you for the hardship that's brought me to the point of being able to trust you. Thank you for reaching out and grabbing me by the scruff of the neck and saying, trust me, I'm your only hope. And then Isaiah holds out the vision of this new city. And it's wonderful. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The vision that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, in the days that will come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above all the hills. All nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about His ways so we may walk in His paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many people. They will beat their swords into plows, their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will never train for war. There is a new city coming, a city marked by this leader who always did what is right, who did not take bribes, and a people that will be cleansed, washed whiter than the snow because of his death and resurrection. Friends, if you trust Jesus, you are part of that city. That new Jerusalem, forgiven, cleansed, washed whiter than the snow, in right relationship with God, our sins being dealt with. How amazing is that this is speaking of you? The old city reminds us of who we are. Jerusalem at this point in the book of Isaiah are wicked and crooked, evil in God's sight. But the new city reminds us, reminds those who trust in Jesus, who we are and what we will be. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John speaks of another vision, a clearer vision of this new Jerusalem. And watch for the language that he uses when he holds out what the future is for those who trust in the work of Jesus. Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Do you see it? The old city gone. And the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The question for us, this side of Jesus, is have you trusted God's appointed leader? Have you trusted the way in which God has offered to wipe clean your sins? Have you put your life in His hands? Or are you living a lie? Pretending you can be God. Pretending you don't need God, that your life's okay. Or going through the motions, thinking that it's alright to rock up and tip your hat to God and come to church on Sunday, but live the other six days for yourself. Where are you at tonight? What is God saying to you? How is He pricking your heart? 
Is it run to me and trust my son? If you don't yet trust Jesus, friends, please see. Here is the only way your sins can be wiped clean and you can live forever. If you do trust Jesus, friends, have you trusted him with your life? Are you living for him? Are you speaking up for the oppressed? Are you speaking up for God? Are you pointing your friends to Jesus? Are you living the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus? Worship God perfectly for you so that you're free to serve him with your all. Friends, if Jesus is your king, learn from the example of Israel. Don't go back to half-hearted worship. Don't remain silent about the salvation we share or the injustices of the world. Live out who you are, part of the new Jerusalem, the people who've been wiped clean, and serve Him. I think it's right that we pray now, and then we'll answer some questions. Lord God, your word is heavy. As we think about the way that you've made us, and yet the way that we've treated you, the way that you've loved us, and the ways we've rejected you, as we think about what Israel deserved and what we deserve, we are so thankful that in your Son you've taken the penalty that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. Show us tonight, Lord, by your Spirit and through your Word, where we're half-heartedly worshipping you. Give us boldness and courage to speak up of your love, that you are the God in control of history, that you've shown your love to the world, and that Jesus is the King. Work through us to bring people to love you and know you, but Lord, through all this, give us a great sense of joy, for our sins have been wiped clean if we trust in you. That which we deserve is something we no longer have to face because Jesus has paid it all. Tonight, Lord, give us a great sense of hope and joy and longing for the day of the new Jerusalem. Amen. Okay. A few questions. Number one. Isaiah 1 2 says, Hear, O heavens, plural, listen, O earth, o earth, are there many heavens? Answer quickly is yes. Heavens just means sky. Listen, sky, listen, ground. Uh, that's what it's saying. So, listen, all the skies, all you heavens. Uh, it's that sort of language. It's saying, Everyone listen, is the kind of picture language that's happening there. Great question. Number two. In reflection on today's passage, should we be following the Mosaic laws and following a whole day of Sabbath by devoting our entire day to glorifying God and not causing anyone else to break it either? That's a really great question in terms of we want to honor God and worship Him rightly, um, but we sometimes think that worshiping God means uh, just living for one part of our life, maybe when we come to church or maybe when I read my Bible for Him. Uh, worship is all of life. Uh, the New Testament says in Romans 12 um, that Offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, is how we are to respond to being freed from death by Jesus' death and resurrection. So, we're no longer required to fulfill the Mosaic law. There's some great talks in um, the number of talks we just did over Galatians that will help kind of tease that out a bit. We're no longer required to do that because Jesus did it for us. He perfectly fulfilled uh, the intent of all of 
God's law and serve God rightly and fully. He's done it for us. And therefore, removing the burden from having to do it perfectly. And therefore, freeing us to be able to live God's way rightly. Now, the law helps us to love God and love others. That's how Jesus summarizes it. Serve God in every area of your life, not just on Sundays. And in terms of having a Sabbath, having a day devoted to the Lord, well, we want to devote our whole lives to Him. And so I think there's a helpful creation principle of having a day off, a rest. But I don't think the New Testament, and particularly Jesus, He, he does good on the Sabbath. When the Pharisees hassle him for picking grains uh, like they did David, he says that was fine because he was about um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so, as we think through how we live out God's law, uh, we think through what does it mean to worship Him and live for Him? Well, we see all throughout the New Testament, it's putting Him first in every area, it's living for Him in every area of life, telling others about Him, serving Him. And so, no, I don't think we need to keep that Mosaic law in that strict sense, but it gives us good guidelines in what it is to live freely now that Jesus has fulfilled it for us. A quick answer to that. Uh, Number three, what about if a woman is raped, undergoes domestic violence and falls pregnant? Is it considered a sin from the Bible's perspective for that woman to have an abortion? Since women are vulnerable too, don't we need to consider their right too? Fantastic question. I'm going to keep saying that. Um, I want to say at this point... Uh, many of us in this room will be affected by the issue of abortion. Uh, it will have touched us through friends or maybe uh, something that we've gone through or family members. Uh, and I, it's, really, uh, it's really tricky. It's so, uh, childbirth is so tied to who you are as a person uh, and to your, your identity. You know, there's something about that. And there's all sorts of wrongs in the world that, that can go on. <laughs> Absolutely. But the question we need to ask is, does one wrong make it okay for another? And so you've got to come back to the question of, when is a person a person? Is that at uh, fertilization? Is that at implantation, when, when that egg gets implanted in the uterus? Or is that when that child comes out? Or is that when I say they're a person? Now, now, the Bible talks about that um, God knew us when we were knitted together in our mother's womb. So, there's a real sense that before we're born, we're a real person. We're known. And so, Christians generally take it that um, conception happens at fertilization. At the moment with which, if there was no intervention, that child, that, that um, fertilized embryo would grow into a human person. Uh, and so, if that's the case, and that's a person from, the, from that moment then to end that life is, is really to end the life of that child. Now, I want to say that all sorts of injustices and horrible things have happened because of men. And I want to apologize on behalf of every man for the, the horrible ways we've twisted and treated women. It's, it's wrong. It's not the way God intended it. Not at all. Uh, and I want to stand by every woman who is faced with that horrible decision. What do I do in this instance? And we as a church want to think through how we give people other options. To be able to move forward, is adoption an option? Oh, well, yeah, but what are the reasons we stop? There's a whole myriad of things we need to think through. But just because one wrong has been committed doesn't mean we ought to commit another. Now, that's hard. That's hard to hear. But the truth is that, yes, women are vulnerable. And I want to love the women in this room by saying, it's not as easy as saying, oh, it's just a quick abortion and it will be done. I've spoken to many women who will talk through the guilt and shame they've carried their whole lives because someone told them it'd be just as quick as a period. 
I want to love you enough to say, don't believe that lie either. That the best thing you can do is to think through what you do in this situation. We'll walk alongside you. And if that is you and you're considering this, or you've been through that, or, or you've, you've had an abortion yourself, we love you, we care for you, we want to walk alongside you. God loves you. He's wiped clean our sin if you trust in Jesus. Uh, but it's an issue that is huge, is it not? Yeah. Chat with me some more if you want to chat about that. What do you think happens? Another question on this. What do you think happens to aborted babies? Do they go to heaven or hell? Uh, my answer is, I don't know. I'm not God. Um, it, the Bible is quite clear that every human being that is born of Adam, i.e. every human being, uh, is born at war with God. And so, w- w- this child I- is born in rebellion against God. Now, we're also told in the Scriptures that if... Um, that will be judged by how much knowledge that we, we have. So there's a sense in which, um, if they haven't had a chance to hear anything, then I'm not sure how they can, could have responded to that. But God would be totally just, would He not? To send anyone who's born of a rebellious nation, who is against Him, and say, well, you're actually born of a nation that wants nothing to do with me. If Iraq is at war with Iran and I'm born in Iraq, I'm born at war whether I like it or not, just because I didn't choose to be there. I mean, lots of us live in New Zealand and get to benefit from uh, the advantages of being born in New Zealand uh, and get a free education or cheap education, uh, free health care. We didn't choose that. If we're happy to take the benefits of our parents' decision to have us in this country, then we've got to arrive with the negatives as well, haven't we? of our first parent, Adam, who was born at war with God. So at that point, I go, I trust God is just. He will do what is right, that is sure. You look at the lengths He goes to to be just at the cross, and Jesus, take the penalty we deserve on Him. He's a just God. He will do no wrong. You can be assured of that. At the same time, you want to say, well, we want to take every opportunity to tell everyone possible about Jesus. And I want to say, don't go through with it. Uh, Let us walk alongside you. Let us do whatever we can to see this child come into the world and have a chance of trusting Jesus. Next question. Regarding there is no sin that can't be forgiven, isn't blaspheming the Spirit unforgivable? Mark 3. Yep, totally. What is blaspheming the Spirit? Great question, I hear you ask. Um, So blaspheming the Spirit, what is the role of the Spirit? We had a look at Acts after we finished Isaiah, and we'll see that all throughout the book of Acts, when the Spirit empowers someone, He empowers them to speak of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. To blaspheme the Spirit is to say that the Spirit is not God. The Spirit pointing us to the fact that Jesus is God's Son and the promised King, that's not real. I'm rejecting the Spirit's testimony of who Jesus is. And if you reject Jesus' death in our place, well, there's no forgiveness because you've got no one who's died in your place. So blasphemy the Spirit is simply saying, I don't trust Jesus And of course, that's unforgivable because you can't be forgiven unless you're in Him, unless He's died in your place and you've trusted Him and you're united to Him by faith. And so that's why that's the only unforgivable sin because it's to say, I I don't trust Jesus, the only solution to my sin. Okay, next question. How do we know what parts of the Old Testament are applicable to our lives today and what isn't? Yeah, um, I've got to say, at some points, it's tricky. Um, What do we do with mixed clothing? Leviticus tells us we can't, you know, should we have tattoos or not? There's a whole heap of questions that are there that are, that are tricky to work through. And, and the way that we see that worked out is to look at what the New Testament authors say 
And see the way they talk about the Old Testament laws being fulfilled. So in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews will tell us that that whole Old Testament law system was a shadow, a good shadow, but a shadow of something that, that was a reality. And so it was a pointer to what would come. And when Jesus came, He was the reality. <laughs> he fulfilled everything that is in the Old Testament. It's all done in Him. So the only question for us now is, am I in Him or not? If I'm in Him, then the benefits of what He's brought are applied to me. <laughs> if I trust Jesus, if I've said, yes, I'm going to serve you as my King. You are my only hope. Uh, and at that point, we then go, okay, now I'm freed from the law to live rightly now. And what does living rightly look like? Well, it's interesting that the New Testament writers don't go back to the law and say, go back to doing that. They talk about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Talk about the fruit of the Spirit and loving others and speaking the Word to others and and not considering here and now the be-all and end-all, but living for the new creation, the new kingdom, and living rightly God's way. And so I think you want to take the balance of what the New Testament authors do and they apply what that means as we go forward. There's lots more to talk about in that, but there's a quick answer. Love to chat with you some more on that. Why don't we pray together again? Thanks for your questions. Keep them coming through. Uh, If we didn't get to answer them all, I'm sorry, Um, but we really love to help you think through what God is saying to us. So let's pray again. Lord, uh, thanks for every person in this room. Thanks for the joy it is to learn from one another, to ask questions about you and your word. And we ask you would keep shaping each of us into the likeness of your son, that your word by your spirit would keep cutting away our complacency and our sin and showing us and lighting up the way for us to live your way. We are again so thankful that you don't treat us as we do deserve, but that you've sent your son and he has died in our place. And because of him, we can stand forgiven.